Welcome once again to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos, your teacher, and really it's the Holy Spirit teaching us and guiding us. Before I came on the air here, I was just praying and asking the Lord to not only um, reveal some things to you, the listening uh, friend, but also to myself as well. And uh, we're so glad to have you join us in this series called Hebrews, The Glory of the New Covenant. And we're moving into Hebrews chapter 3 in our series. But before we do that, I just can't say this enough. Hebrews is not about us. Hebrews is about Jesus. Hebrews is not about what we do for God and fail. Hebrews is about what Jesus has already accomplished for us successfully, and it's done. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and I want to read this in the NIV because I like the way it's rendered in the NIV. It says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, that's the whole point of Hebrews to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. You know, the Greek word for fix our eyes means not only, not just a mere look, it means to sort of look away and to consider attentively, to look steadfastly toward a distant object, or metaphorically it means to behold in the mind, to fix in the mind. So our attention needs to be fastened, not on ourselves, not on our performance. Our attention needs to be focused and fastened on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says that Jesus himself is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We had mentioned that this Greek word behind author, and we said this in the last message, that it means a leader who is also the source of our faith. You know, a lot of people talk about following Jesus, but they fail to understand that Jesus himself is the way. Jesus himself is the source of eternal life. And then it says that Jesus is the finisher of our faith. The Greek word is teleates, and it's related to the other Greek words we've talked about, teleos, and uh, to telestai, which speaks about being accomplished, which speaks about fulfilling or completing. And so here, finisher means that Jesus is the completer, the perfecter of our faith. It's not about you working really hard and, and trying and trying and trying and, well, I hope someday I can get this thing down perfectly. Friend, you'll never get it down perfectly. And, well, That's not the point. The point is that Jesus himself is the perfect one, and from him comes all perfection. And so let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, leader, and source, as well as perfecter, the completer, the accomplisher of our faith. So to this point in the book of Hebrews, the focus has been completely on Jesus, Jesus is the very heart of the new covenant. Jesus is the heart of God the Father. And uh, we see 
so far in Hebrews that uh, Jesus is so much greater, so much greater than angels. This theme will continue to keep coming up over and over again in the uh, following chapters in Hebrews. God is speaking to us through the Son. That's what it said over in Hebrews chapter 1. And then we were studying last time that the grace of God required that Jesus would taste death for us. You know, the new covenant, indeed Christianity itself, is really not about me and what I accomplish for Christ, what I do for God, but about Christ and what he has accomplished for me. That's why Hebrews is consumed with Jesus. Now, the book of Hebrews also brings in or talks about the covenant of law. And that covenant of law is contrasted with the new covenant. The center of the covenant of law is us. And law, which is works righteousness, makes demands on the faithfulness of man. Meanwhile, The new covenant, grace, looks to the faithfulness of Jesus. Law makes a big deal about our commitments. Grace makes a big deal about God's commitments, his covenants. Uh, Just a side note here, I hear this, and this this really bothers me. When people talk about uh, leading others to Christ, they'll talk about committing their life to Jesus. Well, friend, you will not find such language in the Bible, and thankfully so. Uh, The gospel is not about committing our life to Jesus. First of all, uh, that life of a sinner is a life of death. God has no use for it. Rather, the gospel is about God's commitments fulfilled through the life of Jesus. So the difference God committing the life of his son to you. The call of the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Okay, now we get into Hebrews chapter 3. And the theme at the beginning of this uh, particular chapter is on the faithfulness of Jesus. So let's take some time right now. And uh, I encourage you, if you have your Bible handy, it makes these studies go so much better. If you will read along with me, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 3 to start. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house, as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end." Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Okay, let's dig into the text. These verses, verses 1 through 6, begins the many contrasts between the Old and the New Covenant. And here we see the faithfulness of a slave versus the faithfulness of a son. It starts off in verse 1 by saying this, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider 
the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, it starts off by saying, therefore. There's a lot of therefores in the book of Hebrews. And of course, you know the old saying, uh, always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And of course, it's based on the glorious truth brought out in chapters one and two about Jesus, his greatness, his worthiness. It's based upon a great salvation that's accomplished already completely by the Lord Jesus Christ. That therefore is based on the Son who was made lower than the angels as the Son of Man, that he might taste death for everyone. Remember how he talked about all the reasons why the grace of God had Jesus taste death for everyone. We also found out in Hebrews chapter 12, or rather 2, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he himself is holy and has made us holy. Isn't that incredible? Uh, that is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. It says, holy brethren. Again, we are holy because God has called us holy. He has made us holy. We are sanctified by God. And there's more on that subject coming up in Hebrews chapter 10. We are holy brethren all because of Jesus, the Son. It says also here in verse 1 that we are partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, partakers means sharers. So we're sharers together. This isn't, uh, you know, in the kingdom of God, there are not haves and have-nots. We share together. We are called from heaven to heaven. That's that heavenly calling. And whenever you hear about this call of God, it speaks about God's initiative, God's powerful call that sets in motion our redemption. It says, because we are the holy brethren because of Jesus, it says for us in verse 1 to consider to think about, and again, I'm thinking about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, uh, uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, it says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, apostle in the Bible means sent one, and high priest, Jesus is the all-sufficient high priest. The number one mediator between God and man, it's Jesus plus nothing. And again, much more about Jesus' high priestly role coming up later on in our study of uh, Hebrews. Dear friend, I just can't say this enough. Um, the difference between real Christianity and religion, and I think many of us have bought into what we think is a Christianity that's really much more about religion. Real Christianity is Christ-centered. Religion is Christian-centered, man-centered. Let me give you some contrasts between real Christianity and religion. Real Christianity is centered on Christ. Religion is centered on man. Real Christianity is uh, centered on Christ's worthiness while religion tries to make oneself worthy. Real Christianity is about Christ's faithfulness. Religion says you need to be more faithful to God and others. Real Christianity is about Christ's obedience. 
Religion says you need to obey God. Real Christianity is about God's promises. Religion says you need to keep your promises to God. Real Christianity speaks of Christ's sacrifice. Religion says you need to make sacrifices for God. Real Christianity looks to Christ for all, while religion focuses on self, what self is doing wrong, and what self needs to do to improve. Real Christianity is new abundant life in Christ. John 4 verses 13 to 14 and John 10 10. Religion says you need to change your life. Real Christianity, all God's promises are yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians one twenty. Religion says you have to do so you can get the promises. Well, I'm sure as I traveled through that list of differences between real Christianity and religion, maybe you might have said, ouch, a couple of times. Hang in there. Maybe something might have even risen up that said, now, wait a minute. I think what you're calling religion is Christianity. But you will see over and over again in the New Covenant, clearly laid out in the book of Hebrews, no, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's not about what you do for God. It's about what God in Christ has already done for you. That's why the admonition is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned here that uh, in chapter 3 of Hebrews, uh, we see what carries on through much of Hebrews, a comparison between the covenant of law, what some call the old covenant, and the new covenant. And here the contrast is Moses representing the covenant of law versus Jesus who represents the new covenant. And uh, over in verse 2 of Hebrews 2, it says this, for if the word spoken through, I'm sorry, of Hebrews chapter 3 says this, who is faithful to him, uh, this is speaking of Jesus, who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. It says that Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. Moses was faithful in all his house. See, Jesus is the faithful one to God. Do you see that, how it's personal? As opposed to Moses, who was faithful to God's house. Big difference. It says uh, in uh, verse 3, that uh, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses because he actually built the house. Okay, Moses was one who served in the house, but Jesus is the builder. And then if you go to Uh, Verse 5 and 6, it says that Moses is a servant in God's house, verse 5, while Jesus is a son in God's house, verse 6. The difference between a servant and a son. And remember what we said last time, that a son refers to inheritance. A servant is just one who is there doing his master's bidding. He has no rights at all, whereas a son is the rightful heir who has all because of the father's goodness and wealth. 
It also says in verse 6 that we are that house that Jesus is a son over, that God built. So there we see Jesus, who is the faithful son, the one who built the house, the one who is a son in God's house, as opposed to the slave, the faithful slave, Moses, representing the law. And again, law is about what you do for God and fail. The new covenant and grace is about what God does because of his great love, to love you, to bless you, to accept you. Well, let's move on to the next section in Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to be spending quite a bit of time in this section. And uh, this is one of those very important warnings that we find uh, in the book of Hebrews. And this particular warning is about hardening our hearts. Let's read beginning in verse 7, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And let me just go ahead here and add verse 12, which says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, As we move into these verses, again, I have to issue a very important warning, a very important word of clarification about who these verses are addressing. Remember, first of all, friends, that the book of Hebrews was written to Jews. Three different types of Jews are addressed in the book of Hebrews at varying points. Uh, Those Jews who were genuinely born again, they had trusted in Christ alone. And uh, they were suffering persecution for their steadfast faith in Jesus. And those Jews needed to be encouraged. Then there were uh, the born-again Jews who were immature. And there is an exhortation, particularly in chapter 5, to grow up. And then finally, there are those unbelieving Jews who were dabbling in Christianity. They needed to have faith in Christ alone and be saved or face dire eternal consequences. Now, these verses, uh, verses 7 through 11, 12, really, are admonishing unbelieving Jews to believe in Jesus. And uh, let's let's go through... uh, these verses. And also, we're going to be going over into Numbers chapters 13 and 14, a little bit of history. But this is much more than just a history lesson. This speaks to us today. And uh, of course, verse 7 begins with the word today. Uh, Today, if you will hear his voice. Let me let, let me talk about this problem of hardening of hearts. It says right there repeatedly of those who harden their hearts as in the rebellion. Let's go back into Numbers chapter 13 and uh, 
Again, if you have your Bibles, it would be very helpful to go through this. Uh, remember that um, the Lord had delivered the, the nation of Israel out of the clutches of Pharaoh. They were delivered through the Red Sea. They saw God do miracle after miracle after miracle. And then they went before the Lord on Mount Sinai, and the law covenant was made with the nation. And then here they are right up against the promised land, promised so long ago to Abraham. It was time to enter in to the promised land, to the land of abundance. And so we're here in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. I just want to um, underscore something here. It says, The Lord himself said, The land which I am giving to the children of Israel. They would receive the land because God was giving it to them. Friends, that's grace. Whenever you have God giving someone something, not because they deserve it, but simply because God is good, that's grace. So we see God's grace in action. I am giving the land to the children of Israel. And then it goes through and talks about the different tribes of the next several verses. And um, verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. I'm in verse 17. And said to them, go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like. Stop the tape for just a minute. The reason for them spying out the land was not to check out the dangers, but rather to see how good God's gracious inheritance in the promised land really was. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not, be of good cheer, of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the, of the first ripe grapes. And so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamath. And so they went up through the south, and they came to Hebron, Ahaman, Shesha, and Telmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebrew, rather Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkel, and there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and the figs. The place was called the valley of Eshkel because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. Now, I just want to stop right there and just note that uh, the Eshkel Valley is a place of amazing abundance and fruitfulness. Do you see that it took two of the men uh, carrying a cluster of grapes on a pole? Now, friend, whenever I stop by the grocery store and I grab a cluster of grapes, I don't need another person to help me haul it. Those must have been amazing grapes. And uh, in fact, so amazing, uh, they called that valley Eshkol which uh, means literally cluster. 
Do you see the goodness of God? They're encountering the goodness of God in this wonderful place. And so they're actually bringing back the evidence of this wonderful place. And so in verse 25, they return from spying out the land after 40 days. Now we get to a tough part. Verse 26, now they departed and came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now, we would expect the people to go, wow, that's amazing. I can hardly wait to get there. Uh, But these people had serious heart trouble. And uh, let's let's look at this uh, evil report. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. I'm at verse 28. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So there was 11 spies who went into the land, nine of them were saying, yeah, there's some really wonderful things, and yeah, there's some really scary things. Uh, The descendants of Anak. Uh, And there was all kinds of rumors about who they were. Uh, But anyways, uh, there was a mixed report there that came forward. Now, there were two of the 11 that had a pure positive report, the report of faith. Um. And that was Caleb and Joshua. Here's what they said. We are over in verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And uh, verse 32, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So you see, man, what a bad report, right? You know, you have Caleb and Joshua saying, hold on a minute. God's given us the land. We need to go up right away and take possession of it because we are able to overcome it. And yet, despite that good report of faith backed up by God himself, who said, I'm giving it to you, the people had an evil response. Uh, verse 30, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. Verse 32b, the land devours its inhabitants. Uh, Verse 32c, we saw men of great stature. Verse 33a, we saw the giants. Verse 33b, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. Now folks, what's the problem? They kept saying, we saw, we saw, we saw. They relied on their own sight. They relied on their own flesh. And what their flesh told them was true. 
They relied on what I call carnal theology. Theology that is based upon human perception, human wisdom, in other words, flesh. And they completely ignored and disregarded God's perspective, his power, and his promise. Oh my, and what a mess this terrible, evil report had. Its effect uh, on the people. What was the effect of the people uh, when they heard this evil report? <laughs> it says uh, in uh, Numbers chapter uh, 14, beginning in verse 1, let me find it. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Oh my, this is incredible. God had said, I am giving you this land. The spies went out there and they saw it was an amazing land. It was a fruitful land. And there was the clear understanding from God that he would give them the land. And yet their response was one of weeping. Not just a little cry, but a wah that went on all night long. Verse 2, And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Mm. Unbelievable. But that was their reaction. And note, please, in verse 3, not only did the people complain against Moses and Aaron, verse 3 says this, they said this, Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? They complained against the Lord. Not only did they complain against the Lord, it was character assassination. I mean, what kind of a God would lead people to death by sword, even children and women? What kind of a God are they harboring in their mind, in their thought? Do they really think that God was going to do this? Friends, this is the evil heart of unbelief. They slam God's goodness and integrity. They say, why has God brought us here to fall by the sword? And then they're, so God brought us into this place to fall by the sword so that the wives and children should become victims. What a mean God. And then the, the insult, things are better in Egypt. Maybe it's better if we just turn back and go to Egypt. Then you go to verse 4. It says, so they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. So they said, let's fire Moses and Aaron and let's head back. Oh my, what a, what a tragic thing. And then it says, verse five, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, verse 6, the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. 
nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, the, the response of an evil heart of unbelief versus the response of faith. Joshua and Caleb are speaking reality to the people, bringing God back into the equation, not man and his weak flesh, saying again that the land is exceedingly good. And uh, here it says, if the Lord delights in us. Now, I want to bring out a clarification. Remember, they were under law at this point. And remember, uh, the law says, if you do this, then you'll get that. But we are under the new covenant, which doesn't say if, it says since. Then they said, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. Their protection has departed them. The Lord is with us. Throughout the Bible, the idea of God being with someone means God's favor is with them. And how do the people respond? Did they respond in faith? No. Verse 10, and all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Isn't that unbelievable? That is incredible. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? You see, friend, this is the real issue. And this is why Hebrews hearkens to this point in the history of the Jews. They rejected the Lord. They would not believe on him. This is serious stuff. And this, uh, this very incident in Numbers 13 and 14 links up into Hebrews with these strong warnings that say, don't have an evil heart of unbelief. Don't reject the Lord. And the message of Hebrews is Jesus is all. Don't reject him. You reject him and you will face disaster. Psalm 78 kind of gets into this evil heart of unbelief. And uh, I just want to bring out a couple of highlights from Psalm 78 that uh, talks about this hardening of hearts that they had in the wilderness and this rejection of the Lord. In Psalm 78, you can read it on your own, but uh, verse 11 says that they forgot God's works. In verse 19, the people said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? They questioned God's goodness, his ability to do good and abundantly bless. In verse 22 of Psalm 78, uh, they did not believe in God and trust in his salvation, his deliverance. In verse 32, they did not believe in God's wondrous works. And all of this, despite the fact that God is their rock and the most high God, their redeemer, verse 35. And God is full of compassion, forgiving iniquity, verse 38. You see, Friend, if it depended upon us and our performance, we deserve no blessing whatsoever. But God was full of compassion even upon Israel of old, and he 
was forgiving of iniquity. That's powerful. And then it says in verses 40 and 41 of Psalm 78, they provoked, grieved, and tempted God by limiting God. They limited God. What is the bottom line of their sin? They look to themselves and their need. They were in the wilderness after all, rather than resting in God, his faithfulness, his ability, his provision. We're going to wrap up here. Uh, Go back to Hebrews chapter 3 in verse 7. And here's the admonition. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says to today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. If you hear his voice, there needs to be a response. Do not harden your heart. You see, God is faithful. And and friend, you might be a person who might think you're a Christian, but have you really trusted in Christ alone? Or is there this sort of mixture between law and grace going on in your life where you think that, well, if I do enough good things, that that'll outweigh the bad things and that somehow God's going to receive me? My dear friend, it says over in Isaiah 64, 4, that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. The Apostle Paul, who was formerly a Pharisee, said in Philippians chapter 3 that all of those good things that he did in the flesh was like dung to a holy God. You see, my friend, We cannot reject Jesus. These verses are speaking to those of us who have not come to saving faith in Christ. It said in verse 10 that they had heart trouble, right? They were always going astray. That's what it says there in Hebrews chapter 10. They did not know God's ways. Let me ask you this. What's Hebrews about? Is it about you or what Jesus Christ has already accomplished for you? God's way is his son. God's way is gracious provision. God's way is salvation. God's way is he is the rock, the redeemer. God's way is that he is compassionate, forgiving iniquity. God's way is he is limitless provision and blessing. It's all about Jesus and what he does for you and has already done for you through his perfect life, sacrifice, death on the cross. It's not about you and what you do for God. And the result, verse 11 says, they shall not enter my rest. You see, God's rest, and there'll be more in chapter 4 of Hebrews, is about God's finished work, all of it. Well, as we move to the end of Hebrews chapter 3, let's look squarely at this matter of an evil heart of unbelief that is mentioned in verse 12. It says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, 
Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not, uh, rather they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Well, first of all, let me say this. um, And again, context is so critical in the book of Hebrews, well, it's critical anywhere but uh, of the Bible, but it certainly is very true in the book of Hebrews. First of all, it says, evil heart of unbelief. And uh, this is our big clue that this warning is not addressed to Christians, those who by God's grace are in Christ, but to the unsaved. The Bible clearly states that it is the unbeliever the unsaved person who has an evil, wicked heart and not a Christian. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, part of the new covenant promise of God. God says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20 says this, and again, God is speaking and covenantally promising, then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Again, Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20. You see, if the heart of a Christian is still wicked and evil, then how in the world can the Holy Spirit indwell it? You see, the new covenant promise isn't just the removal of sins, my friend. It is a transformed life starting with the heart. God does a heart transplant, takes that old wicked heart out and gives us that old wicked heart, stony heart, and gives us that soft heart in which God himself, the Holy Spirit, can dwell. Uh, Now, if you are still having a hard time with that and that whole concept, I go into much greater depth on this subject and more in my series called Living in the Reality of Perfect Sanctification. That's also available at our website, dailyinchrist.org. Well, Let's let's look at this verses 12 through 18 talk about the the danger of that evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And remember once again the context of Hebrews is it is speaking to Jews, a congregation of Jews, and like any other congregation, there are a, a variety of heart conditions going on. You've got those who are genuinely saved, they're in Christ, they've received the miracle of the new birth through Jesus Christ. And they are walking in faith and trusting in God and probably facing persecution. You have another group of uh, believers, Jewish believers, and they are also genuinely saved, but they're immature. And then you have a third group of Jews that are unbelievers. They have not put exclusive faith in the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, 
Again, that evil heart of unbelief speaks to unbelieving Jews and to any who will not, will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You know, I was talking about this uh, heart problem, and uh, I think of what it says over in Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 5. And uh, I'm going to read several verses here. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Again, that's Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. A contrast between the cursed man and the blessed man. Here, we see that the cursed man is the one who trusts in man, who also makes flesh his strength. So the cursed man is the one who trusts in man. The blessed man is the one who trusts in the Lord. The cursed man is the one who makes flesh his strength. The blessed man is the one whose hope is in the Lord, and the cursed man is the one whose heart departs from the Lord. And uh, in the rest of uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, it talks about the results of trusting in man, making flesh our strength, and departing from the Lord versus the results trusting in God. For that one who's trusting in the flesh, trusting in himself and departing from the Lord, they're like a shrub in the desert, it says in verse 6. Meanwhile, for the one who trusts in God, they are like a tree planted by the waters, verse 8. For the one who trusts in himself and departs from the Lord, uh, they shall not see good when it comes, verse 6. But for the one who trusts in God, they shall not fear when heat comes, verse 8. For the one who trusts in himself and not in the Lord, they shall inhabit, live in, not just visit, parched places in the wilderness. Verse 6, the results of the one who trusts in God will have uh, a leaf that will be green. Speaking of health, that's verse 8. And the one who puts trust in himself and not the Lord, uh, they dwell in a salt land, which is not inhabited. That's a land that is poison and never will be fruitful. Abandoned in a desolate land where no one else wants to live. Verse 6. Meanwhile, for the one who trusts in God, not anxious in the year of drought. Verse 8. Even in conditions when all else is in want, they have no anxiety, no uh, nor fear. And then it adds, for the one who trusts in God, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Verse 8. So they're always fruitful, productive, even in the year of drought. So what's the fundamental problem? Back to Hebrews chapter 3. It is a heart problem. And over in Deuteronomy, God himself identified that as the problem of Israel of old when they refused to enter the promised land. Hebrews chapter 3 talks about an evil heart of unbelief and one in unbelief, 
that turns from the living God. Now, verse 14 says this, getting ourselves back over to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, It says this, I'm sorry, chapter three, for we have become, have become partakers in Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So there are those who are in Christ. They share together with Christ. They are those who have their trust and their confidence in the Lord. You know, by the way, speaking of confidence, that's what Hebrews is all about. Is it confidence in myself, confidence in man, confidence in a religious system, confidence even in the law? Or is it confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ? Our confidence is a new covenant confidence, and it is a confidence that is based and established upon the perfection and greatness of Jesus and the finished work of Jesus. My friend, that is good enough, not only for the beginning of our Christian life, but carrying it through all the way to the end. Verse 15, again, that warning that just keeps uh, being repeated. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. When is the time to turn to Christ in saving faith? Today, right now. And uh, as we saw in this uh, particular installment of our study, When we went back to Numbers 13 and 14, we saw what that evil heart of unbelief and rebellion was all about. And at the end of chapter 3 of Hebrews, it says this, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Well, coming up, Hebrews chapter 4, I am really excited about uh, chapter 4. There's a lot of things where the Lord changed my understanding on the subject of rest. What does it mean? And what is the Sabbath rest? More on that coming up in our next edition of Daily in Christ and our study of Hebrews, the glory of the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is everything that we could possibly ever need and so much more. Thank you, Lord, that in him we have full perfection because he is perfect. In him, he has finished all of the work on our behalf. All is complete. All is done. All is finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, Lord, we praise you because that is the way it is. It was and it is forever. Father, I pray that you'll take this word that we have dug into today. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through your holy word. And Father, I pray that by the Spirit, you would open up our understanding, that you would enlighten this truth in a powerful, life-changing way for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.